Exodus 16. Today I'm going to talk about the subject of grumbling. The reason is, is I want to help you when you drive away from your family get-togethers. <laughs> or maybe this service. Or maybe when you have to go back to work. Or school. Or when you didn't quite get the present that you wanted. Exodus 16, verses 1 through 12, is our text. Then we're going to go to a number of other places in the Old and New Testament. So you either need a copy of the Bible, either in print or on your phone, because we're going to go to a number of places today. Here's our base text. Exodus 16, 1. They, these are the Israelites, set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Now just stop here just for a moment. Can someone just remind them that they were slaves, right? This, you'll see, this is what happens. Um, you, you lose your mind. Grumbling causes you just to like, go spiritually bankrupt, spiritually insane. Then they say this to Moses and Aaron, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This is the word of God. Would you say thanks be to God? Amen. Our theme for these weeks on this series of gratefulness has been this. When you see grace, give thanks. And last week I added a word, always. So when you see grace, say thanks always. In week one, I tried to help you understand that when we receive God's gifts, whatever they are, we are to see them and pronounce goodness over them. We receive and we say, that's a good grace. Week two, Nay helped us to understand the connection between those gifts and the very character of God. Week three, we added the word always to not only include those moments when we receive things that are obviously good, but also learning how to give thanks in all circumstances, to see gratefulness as a command and also as a lifestyle, to see it, if we could, as sort of spiritual muscle memory. 
Today we're going to look at the issue of grumbling. And if we're honest, gratitude doesn't always work like we know that it should. We, we know that we should be thankful. We know that much more good is happening in our world and that God is going to take care of us. We know that the Bible is true. We know that for those who know Christ, all things work together for good. We know that's true. But faced with particular circumstances that are just flat out annoying, or desires that are unfulfilled, or disappointments that just come one after another, it's very easy to begin to grumble. I've suggested to you that human beings are prone towards ingratitude. We express this either in idolatry, we take the gift and we worship it, or in some cases immorality, where we step outside of God's design or his gift of what is right and wrong. When it comes to grumbling, it's simply another expression of ingratitude. You're gonna see in a moment that there are three sin issues that emerge in the context of the Old Testament and three sin issues that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10 identifies as enormously problematic in the life of the people of God. And those issues are idolatry, immorality, and grumbling, and they go together. You can't read the Old Testament and the story of God's people without finding a consistent struggle with all three of these, especially the issue of grumbling. So today what I wanna do is take you on a bit of an Old Testament survey. We're gonna look at six different stories, six different sections in God's word and then into the New Testament. And then I wanna give you some practical steps of what do you do through the gospel to deal with the issue of grumbling. We're gonna look at the pattern, the problem, and the prescription. Okay, so three Ps, that's what seminary does, it ruins your mind, okay? Pattern, the problem, and the prescription, okay? Number one, the pattern. A quick survey of the Old Testament would show us that grumbling is a consistent problem with God's people. So we're in Exodus 16, so keep your finger on that particular text, but I want you to understand where this text is landing. Go back to Exodus chapter 11. I'm just gonna highlight these chapters. Chapters seven through 11 are the first nine plagues. So Israel, if you remember, was, there were slaves in Egypt. God turns the gods of the Egyptians on themselves and sends them nine plagues. The 10th plague is in chapter 12, connected to the celebration now known as Passover, where the death of the firstborn child in every home, not covered by the blood on the doorposts, a prefiguring of the death and burial of Jesus. Every child, not in a home, covered by that blood, who was the firstborn, died. In chapter 13, turn over there, just notice the heading, the Children of Israel are led by the pillar of cloud and fire, and they brought, they're brought right up to the edge of the Red Sea. Look at chapter 14. In chapter 14, we have a problem as Israel is stuck between an inconceivable barrier of the Red Sea and a sure destruction as Pharaoh and his army is approaching. They, they seem to be trapped. Chapter 14, the Red Sea is split open. The people of God walk through on dry land. Pharaoh follows, him, the, follows them. The, the waters collapse, and Pharaoh and his army are drowned. Song of, a Song of Moses in chapter 15 is a beautiful celebration of God's deliverance. And 
interestingly enough, immediately after this unbelievable deliverance, God takes his people out of Egypt. He turns the gods of Egypt on themselves. He takes them to the Red Sea, splits the sea. They walk through, he destroys Pharaoh. They sing the song saying things like, I will sing to the Lord because he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And it's only a few days later, they're looking around and going, hey, we don't have any water. Or a few days later, they're looking around and saying, Moses, you brought us out in the wilderness to kill us, didn't you? Look at on the screen, Exodus 16, verse two. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died, notice this, this is almost blasphemous, by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Unbelievable that they say these things. I mean, if you're Moses, if I'm Moses, I'm gonna say, yeah, that's why I brought you out here. That was the plan, so you could all starve and die. You see this grumbling take off. This is not the first time that this happened in Israel's life. Look at Exodus 14 and verse 10. So that was Exodus 16, look at Exodus 14. They get to the edge of the Red Sea. And Exodus 14, verse 10 says this, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. Just note that, they feared greatly. We'll come back to this pattern, but notice that there. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Yeah, that's the problem, there's a grave shortage. That, that's, that's the issue. There's, there's not enough graves, so I thought I'll bring you out here because there's lots of graves out in the wilderness. See, people, when, they, when we, we grumble, we say silly things. We say foolish things. He says, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have, better, would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. It's remarkable. It doesn't stop there. Look at um, Exodus 15 and verse 22. So after they get through that moment, the Red Sea crossing happens. They sing the song of Moses. Look at Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days, notice that, three days in the wilderness and found no water. So three days after God split the Red Sea, three days after Pharaoh was defeated, three days after they'd been brought out of the land of Egypt, three days. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Marah and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? It only took three days, and the people went from the song of Moses to a pattern of grumbling. Now, the book of Exodus is not the only place we find this. Go to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers has a series of stories that help us to understand the, the, the scope of how big a problem this was for the people of Israel. So I'm trying to establish here this problematic pattern for the people of God. It even got into Moses' family and the highest levels of leadership of Israel. Numbers chapter 12 and verse one. 
Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. And then this repeats, he repeats this, for he married a Cushite woman. What's the deal with a Cushite woman? Well, most scholars believe this Cushite woman was a woman from Ethiopia. And so here we have a racial issue where Moses and Aaron, Moses and Aaron are not happy that, or Miriam and Aaron, rather, are not happy that Moses married an Ethiopian woman. And rather than getting after him about the Cushite woman, they go after him about his authority. Familiar end run when it comes to this kind of subject and issue. Verse two, they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Numbers 12 says, and the Lord heard it. And Miriam was stricken with leprosy. Eventually she's healed. But notice, grumbling makes it even into the highest levels of Israel's leadership. Then go to Numbers 14. Numbers 14. Here we have the story of when the Israelites come right up to the land of Canaan. So they're about to go into the promised land and they send spies to check out the land. And those of you who are maybe raised in a Sunday school know how this story goes. There's a little song, it goes like this. 10 men went to spy out Canaan, 10 were bad and two were good. Did you get that? I'll do it again. 12 men went to spy out Canaan, 10 were bad and two were good. And then there's a song that, it goes on. It's incredibly awesome, okay, but anyways. The great thing about that song is that you remember 10 were bad and two were good. Well, 10 spies went in and they came out saying, yeah, there's no way, it's a lost cause. They're huge, I mean, they're like giants, like we're gonna lose, we shouldn't do this. And two guys, Joshua and Caleb, were like, no, the Lord's with us, like God's promise, let's go. And the, the 10 spies disheartened the rest of the people of Israel. Look at Numbers 14, verse one, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It's crazy stuff. People are so afraid, they go after Moses and Aaron and they suggest a coup so they can return back to the land where they used to be slaves that God delivered them out of. The result of this was nobody alive except Caleb and Joshua were allowed to go into the land of Egypt. This, this was a big deal. Not just because they grumbled, but as you'll see in a moment, their grumbling led them down to a path that actually created the usurping of authority and unbelief. The final example is Numbers 21. Take a look at that text. The people are now sent into the wilderness where they're gonna wander until that whole generation dies. Can you imagine that moment? There's one guy left, right? And they're just waiting for Ezekiel to die. Because when he goes, we're going in. They're like, how's he doing? Ah, he's still hanging on. Oh, good, great. Come on, man. Come on, man. Come on. Right? As soon as he goes, they're going in. So they're, they're wandering through the land and the wilderness. 
Numbers 21, verse 4, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the sea to go to the land, to go around rather the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Very familiar. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and would live. Now this becomes a very, very important symbol, a statement that Jesus even quotes in John chapter three when he says, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And this idea of I'm gonna look and live, I'm gonna believe and by seeing, thereby being healed becomes a model for the New Testament concept of what happens in the person and work of Jesus. But you need to know that behind this miraculous deliverance and this really important symbol is none other than the sin of grumbling. So I've showed you these six texts because I want you to see this familiar pattern of God's people when dealing with the issue of grumbling. I want to sort of raise your awareness because here's part of the problem with grumbling is it becomes very domesticated. If you are raised in a home with grumblers, you may not even think that grumbling is bad. In your home, it's just how you vent your feelings. It's how you get it off your chest. Or in some cases, we're kind of sneaky with it. It's how you share a prayer request. We find creative ways to actually grumble. So that's the pattern. So what's, what's the problem? There's a problem that's baked into this pattern and it relates to the people's relationship with God. In other words, when you think about grumbling, you might wanna just kinda jot this down because here's sort of a summary of what's wrong with grumbling. Grumbling is essentially not a word problem. Grumbling is a God problem. Exodus 16. Moses tells the people, the Lord has heard your grumbling. He says he's heard your grumbling against him. This is Exodus 16, 7. For what are we that you grumble against us? Verse 8, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us but against the Lord. So, the essential problem is that grumbling is the malfunction of gratitude. So gratitude takes what God gives or what God allows, what God provides, or things that fit within his sovereign rule, and gratitude sees those things and pronounces over them a goodness. We receive and pronounce good. But grumbling, on the other hand, is ultimately connected to unbelief in that we receive and we pronounce over it, not only is this not good, but if this isn't good, then you must not be good. That's what grumbling does. It accuses God about things that aren't true about him. And rather than being full of faith, grumbling heads down a particular path with fears and doubts and sometimes slander or undermining or questioning, and eventually it gives birth to full-on unbelief. 
Let me show you this in 1 Corinthians 10. You might think, well, this is just an Old Testament problem. No, it's not. It's a human problem, and we just happen to see some of the classic examples of it in the Old Testament. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul uses these Old Testament stories as a means of trying to help the Corinthian church to sort of wake up out of their arrogant dissensions. He wanted them to realize that while they were a gifted church and they had many things to be thankful for, there was also this problem of overconfidence. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse one, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank from the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So he's setting them up. They all had the same spiritual resources, but what you'll see in verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Why is he telling them this? Because he wants these Corinthians to wake up to their overconfidence that because they are part of this church doesn't mean that they don't need to take a careful look at how they're really doing spiritually. He warns them. Like there were a bunch of people in Israel and they didn't make it. They, they had the same spiritual food, they followed the same cloud, um, they, they saw the same pillar of fire, they heard the same commandments, and he warns them. These things, verse six, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he lists some things that they needed to be aware of, and we need to be aware of these. He says, first, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Secondly, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Verse nine, we must not, we must not put, the, put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And then verse 10, or grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Notice here that he identifies idolatry, immorality, and grumbling. Why are all three of those such a big deal? Because unbelief is in all of them. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Take heed, take heed in what way? To beware that you read the Old Testament, you ought not read that and go, man, how could they grumble like that? And then in a few hours later, you're grumbling yourself. So part of the challenge in realizing how to defeat grumbling is coming to fully understand the enormous problem that grumbling can become. The normalization of it, the minimalization of it, those are huge hindrances in dealing with this issue. Let me define what I mean by grumbling. Scott Hubbard, in an article entitled Do Everything Without Grumbling, says this, grumbling is discontentment made audible. That's really good. Discontentment made audible. He says it's the heart's contempt escaped through the mouth. It's like bitterness verbalized. It's the sound we make, he says, when we have a strong craving for something that we don't have and we begin to grow restless. So what happens, 
and I'll show you this in a sort of a spiral in a moment, is it begins with a desire, and when that desire, sometimes good, sometimes bad, isn't met, at that moment, you have a choice to make. Am I going to be grateful and turn my heart towards thankfulness and contentment and praise, or am I going to allow it to create disappointment, frustration, anger, bitterness, etc., etc. Hubbard continues, he says this, unfair, says some voice within us. That's not right, says another. Desires become expectations, expectations become rights. And instead of bringing our disappointment to God and allowing his words to steady us, we let unmet desire fester into discontentment and we grumble because we have diligently listened to a voice other than the Lord our God's. And we have begun to repeat the words. Instead of crying out to God, help me trust that you are good, we mutter and spill and vent, and the equivalent is of saying, God, your ways are not good. So when something happens in your life, you have sometimes a split second to make the decision, am I going to pursue gratitude or am I going to pursue grumbling? Am I going to verbalize the discontentment of my heart and then what happens is you bring other people into what I'd like to call the grumbling spiral. Here's what it looks like. As I looked at these texts, I just wrote down, here's the characteristic pattern that I see in the Old Testament. It begins with misplaced desires. We've already talked about that. Your desires that were right, but now they get off, you're frustrated. And then what happened in the Old Testament is now exaggerated words are used. You don't just talk, you exaggerate. This always happens. No one ever, I wish, or in the case of the Old Testament Israelites, you brought us out here to kill us. There's no graves, we ate this food. God's abandoned us, let's go back to Egypt, find a new leader. And it's just like, these people are crazy. Because that's what grumbling does. It, it causes you to say crazy things. You move from there, it then moves to blame others. You see. Grumbling needs to pin it on somebody. So you, you blame somebody. Moses, Aaron, you're the ones who brought us out here. This whole thing was because there were grave shortages in Egypt. You know, I say crazy things, but you blame people for things. And then also, grumbling usually involves a group. You know, I've just seen in the Bible and practically seen it in my own life, grumblers don't travel alone. They travel in herds, in packs. You know why? Because grumbling alone really isn't much fun. You need other people to go, yeah, this food is awful. Yeah, you shouldn't be treated like that. Or yeah, I, I, that happened to me too, yeah. And before you know it, everyone's in on your rant. And you find others who suddenly agree with you. And listen, if you're a, a, a parent or you're a leader, you start to grumble, it's remarkable how grumblers come out of the woodwork. And you might wonder, why do people grumble to me? It's a good question. It may be because you're a grumbler and they think we're gonna find a grumbling party together. And then where grumbling leads is to a pattern of unbelief. You actually come to believe things that aren't true. You come to believe things about other people, you come to believe things about yourself, and you come to believe things about God. Even though you know what the Bible says, you don't live as if it's true. All that's in front of you is your disappointment, your words, your blame, other people, and you begin to believe a narrative that's just patently not accurate. 
Again, Scott Hubbard says, grumbling is the hum of the fallen human heart and often a hallmark of a Christian's indwelling sin. Listen, every person in this room has done this, haven't we? I mean, there's things that bother us enough that we start to talk about it. Grumble about it, complain, find other people. Yeah, you begin to feel self-justified. The question is not if you struggle with grumbling in some way, but the question is what issue is the issue that for you is the primary pinch point when it comes to grumbling? So that's the pattern, the problem, finally here, the prescription. So what do we do about this? How do we, how do we battle through the problem of grumbling? I've tried to help you understand the the significance of the issue just so that the normalization of it can be taken away because I think that's part of the challenge is just to realize, wait a minute, I'm grumbling. So what do we do? Number one, I want to encourage you to reflect. The problem with grumbling is it happens so quickly, almost without thinking. Some of you are here, and if you're honest, grumbling has become such a part of your life that's actually so normalized that this may be the first time in a long time that you realize, you know what? That's actually not a good way, a godly way, a righteous way, or even a healthy way to live. What grumbling is is essentially a mouth and a heart with no filter. And so when I say reflect, the first thing you need to do is stop talking. That would be helpful. And start thinking. Like, wait a minute. Why am I saying this? Because grumbling happens with thoughtless words. Your your words, there's just no filter from your heart to your mouth, and it, it 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 just goes. And as a result, we say foolish things, things that, quite frankly, an hour later, you might be really embarrassed about. If recorded, you would be ashamed about. You ever had that happen where you dial somebody and you didn't intend to call them and you're like, oh man, I wonder what they heard, right? So a couple questions you might want to ask yourself to reflect. Number one, what do I want right now? I use this a lot in my own heart and life is I ask myself, look, I'm upset about this or I'm talking about this. What do I want to help identify this is what I want. Sometimes even verbalizing, just saying it is, is really helpful. What am I afraid of? Why am I using these words? So to stop and reflect, just to not allow the grumbling to continue, but to simply stop and think, what's going on right now? Number two, reflect. Secondly, remember. I want you to hear Philippians chapter two. If you wanna take some strides in this area of uh, grumbling, write down Philippians two, 12 through 16. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Therefore, beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He's saying here that in order to not do everything with grumbling, You need to understand what it means for God to have graced you and work out that salvation with fear and trembling and hold fast to the word of life. Here's what it means if you're a Christian. 
It means that you understand all of what God has done for you in Christ. It means that you believe the promises of God are sure. You know the character of God, and you know how to think about difficulties and problems, and that if he has proven himself to be trustworthy to you in the grace that he supplied to your sins, then surely God can be good and helpful to you to deal with a difficult relative over Christmas. If Jesus conquered the devil, he can take care of Uncle Dan. I didn't have any Uncle Dan's in mind, just so we're clear, all right? It was the devil and Dan, that's why I put those, the D's, or we brought them together, not because I got Dan in mind, okay? So, but the point is, is that there's, there's a connection between understanding what God has done in the past and what he still is able to do. If he's given you grace to be able to face whatever it is that you're struggling with and all of your temptations, then surely he can give you the grace needed to deal with difficulties at work, restarting in your school, challenging relationship, and rather than complaining and grumbling, we can hold fast to the steadfast love of the Lord, hold fast to the faithful word, as Philippians 2 says, the word of life, believing, Romans 8:32, that if God has given us everything we need in Christ, then surely he will give us everything that we need. Philippians 4:19 is another promise to claim. It says this, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You don't lack, Christian, you don't lack any grace needed in order to deal with the things that you face. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, one of the reasons to understand the, the hope of the gospel is that Christians, when their sins have been forgiven, see life through an entirely different lens. But the biggest need in our life, namely to have our sins covered and to have a right relationship with God, that issue has been settled in the personal work of Christ, and that means that Christians then see everything, or they're supposed to see everything through that lens. Christians aren't perfect, we fail, we sin, but we know that underneath our lives that something radically has changed, that Jesus forgave us of everything that we were, everything we've done, and because of that, then we can see life through a very, very different lens. You combat grumbling by rehearsing the gospel. You defeat the death spiral of grumbling by holding fast to the promises in the Bible. And then finally, so reflect, remember, third, rejoice. You know, grumbling needs space to operate. It needs neurons and tongues and ears and friends. Instead of Using all of those for grumbling, let me suggest that you should fill those with gratitude. Some of you experienced the joy of this in the first week when I gave you the assignment of five things in the morning and five things in, in the evening, how it just helped you to be more gratitude aware. And it may be that if you experience something difficult at work or in a family member um, engagement or some holiday uh, gathering, that before you get in the car and start to complain about all the things that went right, maybe someone in your home needs to say, okay, that was interesting, let's start by what we're thankful for. Someone in the back seat says, I'm thankful it's over. Thanks, good start, okay. What else, what else? I'm thankful for this car that can take us away. Okay, good, that's good, I'm thankful for what? What else? So we gotta start with what are we thankful for? The way that we fill our lives and our minds with the right thoughts is by focusing on where God is at work, not focusing on where we don't think God is at work. Got a hard person in your life? Rather than focusing on all of the 
ways in which they're messed up, and maybe they're messed up. Why not start with what you're thankful for about that person? Why not rehearse and thank God for the grace that you do see as you pray for the grace that you'd like to see? So rejoicing can be your first step when hard circumstances come your way. In the midst of a world that's filled with grumbling and ranting, do you know how unusual it would be for Christians to be so radically different because underneath their lives is the beautiful gratitude for the gospel? Who in the midst of a crooked and perverse world, as Paul says, shine like lights because they've put off grumbling and instead have embraced gratitude? You see, it's not just enough to be thankful. The Bible calls Christians to be thankful, but it also calls calls us to put away grumbling That when we see grace, we say thanks, always. And we do that especially and intentionally when we're tempted to grumble. Let's pray together. Lord, there are many challenges that we all face, things that can easily take us down a road, a path that can express can be expressed through hearts that are bent toward bitterness or frustration. Lord, I pray that you would grant us the kind of grace that we need to take hard circumstances, not deny that they're hard, but to know how we're gonna use those to platform your glory, even when we're disappointed, when we're sorrowful, and sometimes when we're just flat out mad. So Lord, help us to walk, we pray, in newness of life, Help us to live out the power of what the gospel means. To do that so remarkably that people might even wonder, what's the difference with you? Why do you talk differently than everyone else? Oh Lord, let that be our testimony and our name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.